0: This is a podcast? Why have I I been dressing up this whole time? I'm wearing a three-piece suit. (laughs) Welcome to C-Lab, the customer education laboratory where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and exterminate the myths and bad advice that stop growth dead in its tracks. I'm Adam Evermescu. And I am Dave Darrington. And today is National Garfield the Cat Day. Did... Oh my gosh. My, my daughter would love this.
1: My, um, my wife's grandfather would love this. And I have a soft spot in my heart for Garfield. So that, that's awesome. And how did, that, how did that come about?
0: That's what I want to know. You know, know he's uh, one of America's most beloved cartoon characters. Yeah.
1: And he reminds me of my own cat, who's annoying and a little bit on the heavy side.
0: And you know, who among us doesn't hate Mondays?
1: <laughs> and who among us doesn't love lasagna? Okay. Oh, that's
0: true. That's very <laughs> true. Um, cool. So uh, hopefully no one will mail us to Abu Dhabi for today's episode, but we're going to do uh, a little bit of a mini episode today. It's uh, it's summer, so you know the living's going to be easy, and we're going to do a couple of uh, shorter episodes for the next few weeks covering uh, very specific topics. So... For this episode, let's start with a question that we actually got in the Customer Education Slack channel, which has uh, become our virtual mailbag. Fabulous.
1: Yeah, and if you don't know about that Slack channel, we will uh, make a link to it. Uh, it's it's a great site to go to, and all of us that are really passionate about customer education are active. Where are we at now? Over 500 or so
0: people in that There's community? It's probably almost 500, so uh, you could be the 500th. It's uh, customereducation.org. There's a lot of folks active in there.
1: Fabulous. Well, let's pick something out of the Slack channel mailbag. How about All that? Right. Um, so I have captured a note from Emilio. And Emilio says, I work at Segments, a customer data infrastructure platform, and we're currently relaunching our onboarding process to make it more engaging and useful to our customers. We've defined the structure and topics that we want to cover during the customer onboarding, but we're a bit divided on what is the best way to deliver the content now he goes on to say i was wondering if people have recommendations on how to best deliver the different modules and content we want to cover so for instance would you recommend and we're, we're going to tackle this today would you recommend video lectures with quote unquote talking heads air quotes um without talking heads would you have slides screencasts, drawing boards, etc. or a mix of all these things. We've done research, but we figured it would be awesome to hear from companies that are working on something
0: similar. Well, so Dave, we've that we've worked up. on something similar, haven't we? Oh, my goodness. We have a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. So this is actually a really frequent question that we hear. And I actually think we've covered this on uh, a previous mailbag when we used to do that segment as part of our normal episodes. But uh, this will give us a chance to address some of the specific questions and discussion here. Dave, uh, what what is the best format for delivering online courses?
1: Oh, my gosh. So that's a loaded question for us because... I, and I, and well, yeah, it's a podcast. I if you disagree or agree with me, it's a podcast. And, and our goal here is to, to <laughs> fight it out a little bit. Let's talk about the pros and cons and have a good discussion about it. Um, I, I, I want to just kind of flesh this out a little bit. I mean, I have my own opinions, and I'm sure you do as well. But I think it's good to frame an answer to this question in context of you need to know what your organization is is doing you know what are you trying to present and you also need to know what your audience is who are the learners that you're trying to address and with those i mean this is a good instructional design uh, requirements gathering thing right what best what is best for the customer what how do they want to learn let's start let's start there what do you think about that adam
0: i think that you're right to say that it starts with the audience Um, and in fact yeah we can start there so one thing to think about is how do you expect your learners to be accessing your content and what are some of the constraints around that? So we have a lot of folks out here, um, listening whose learners probably interact with them on the desktop. We probably have equally as many who are primarily reaching out to people who have very limited time and capacity and they're on mobile. Um, and, and maybe some who, uh, don't even have, you know, products that are accessible on the web at all. So, you know, yeah. the, the best format in a lot of ways is the format that's going to allow you to reach your audience in the place that they're looking for you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's true. And and, and here's a, an interesting thing, an interesting aside. So formerly I had been at Gainsight and then I was at Azuqua and now I'm at Outreach. The audience is fundamentally different between every one of those because the kinds of people I'm engaging with. Gainzite was a customer success manager, like uh, most likely, um, not all the time, or an admin of the system. Then Azuqua was a very technical platform, so I was I was dealing with almost programmers, and now in outreach I'm I'm working with largely software or I'm sorry, uh, sales development managers or uh, sales development reps or account managers etc. And some admins. So there's all kinds of different people. And as you imagine, here here's a just to, to beat that down. A customer success manager is is kind of like an account manager. They're very busy, but they're working on, you know, following up and making sure customers happy. And it's post sales. But a sales development rep, those persons though sorry, <laughs> those people are quite a bit different because they don't have a lot of time. They're measured on how many uh, meetings that you're you're booking and getting so or getting some opportunity prospects, and it's a very different world. So, do they have time to do a lot of training? Do they have time to do it during the day? Can it be long form? Those are all the kind of questions that go through my mind.
0: Yeah, I think you know, in the spirit of trying to get some answers about this without feeling completely constrained by all the research that you would have to do, um, you can do a design sprint around this. And in fact, this is something that um, I've done before and have seen other teams do where you basically say, hey, in two weeks or one week or whatever um, time period you want to use, I'm going to create a little PowerPoint deck. And in that deck, I'm going to put the major personas that we're trying to serve through learning. And we're going to give them a name. uh, We're going to talk about what they're trying to learn, what's most important to them, and how they would be accessing learning. And the fact of the matter is, you can't really do that until you've actually talked to some of those customers. So the first thing that you can do in your design sprint is actually talk to the people who would be receiving your training, figure out a little bit about their preferences, figure out about how they want to learn, but like, but beyond that, figure out what they want to do with your product. Um, and then you can put together your deck. Uh, it can have little fake names for the people. So you can have, um, you know, Tony, the construction worker or, uh, whoever, whoever your audience is, (laughs) um, Danica, the designer, I'm just trying to think of names. Uh, and and uh, again, if you talk about what's important to them and how they want to learn, you can start to make some assumptions about what format is going to best serve them. Uh, it doesn't take that long to do, and it'll give you a pretty good basis with how you want to approach the best format for learning.
1: I love this. So, So again, what we're saying here is think about the audience. Think about what time they have, who they are, how do they like to consume content, um, I would even uh, bring up a, a fancy term called psychographics. You know, we used to talk about demographics, which were a little bit more limiting. Um, but you know, generally, what are the trends and how people like to consume content?
0: Yeah, right? well, I mean, you're, you're right to say, too, that there's, there's some macro trends as well. We know that in general, learning experiences are getting shorter. They're getting more micro. And that's partially because we have different formats to deliver them in now, right? It's easier for someone to mm-hmm. watch a YouTube video or, you know, to watch a, a quick video in a learning path than it is to go attend, uh, a five day course on something. And, and that to me is not because it's inherently better to do it, um, one way or the other, I think the reason that people were going to five day courses was because that was the modality that was available. It was, you know, we, we didn't have the ability right. to offer bite-sized learning to people online that we could update frequently and we could serve to them through SaaS platforms.
1: Yeah, and it's, oh my gosh, it's fundamentally different than even 10, 20 years ago when we were taking training and you'd sit in a classroom for days on end and be bored and and you wouldn't retain stuff. And now we're in the micro, which it's different modalities, right? You know, how, how we come across with learning, we've got a palette of so many different tools, you know, a nice little toolbox with all these different things. And Adam, let me bring up a term that I think goes back to, Gosh, my my teacher roots. Um, you know, my mom was a teacher. And one of the big things that she had talked about way back when I was a kid, and I really love this kind of stuff, is a learning style. Now, there's some probably m- myth around and, and misunderstandings about the kinds of learning styles, They're like, are you an auditory learner or kinesthetic? You know, hands-on learner. Or are you a visual learner? I think everybody is. It's more of a spectrum rather than as an absolutist. You are a visual learner only because we have different senses. But I don't know about you, Adam, but I like to contextualize this by saying I go multimodal. I use different things, different tools, and see if I can offer them all up to augment one another. Meaning, I might do video, but I'll also have a, a written version of that too for people who like visually follow along, but listen to, but watch the video as well. So that. We can, maybe we break, break down the discussion around that. Like, what are all the tools and the different
0: ways we can communicate? Yeah, you, you've brought me to my second point as well, um, which is that learning styles are, are largely a myth. Um, and this is something that yeah. was accepted as orthodoxy in the instructional design community for a really long time. And it's, you know, in, in the spirit of uh, vanquishing the, the myths and bad advice that stop growth dead in its tracks, I think this is one of them. Because the first thing that people think they know about learning is that they have a learning style. And what you'll notice, actually, about learning styles is that very few people uh, will tell you when they're talking about their own personal learning style, uh, very few people will tell you that they're an auditory learner. And, right? Have you you ever heard someone tell you they're an auditory learner? Well, I'm one of them because I like to listen first.
1: Um, And I might tell you that, but... No, I've not heard of anybody beyond me
0: <laughs> that's, that's that that. I hear it very rarely. Um, it's it's definitely the exception, not the rule. And in fact, fewer people say they're... If I had to rank the number of times I've heard it, and this is you know very unscientific, but <laughs> most people, when they're talking about their own personal learning style, out of the three, if you're talking about visual, auditory, kinesthetic, they say they're a visual learner. And um, I have a pet theory around that, which is that people say they're a visual learner because when they're presented with information that is visual, they... Respond to it, but that doesn't mean they're a visual learner. Uh-huh. That means the information that was presented to them in a visual format resonated with them, and they're uh, they're indexing more heavily on that experience because it was effective for them. Um, and I would argue that that has less to do with the fact that they're a visual learner, and more to do with the fact that certain information presented visually is going to be more effective. Um, but visuals aren't our default for how we present information. Kinesthetic mm-hmm. is not our default for how we present information. Most information by default is presented uh, audit auditorily. I don't know if that's a word. Auditorily through a lecture, um, or I guess visually through reading, but that's not really what people mean when they say they're a visual learner. Right? They yeah. don't mean reading. No, so it's it's no, no
1: that's yeah. really cool though. So so you're saying again, you're kinda of lending or leading into this multimodal, um, format, you know, like at one point I wanted to inject here and I'll let you go back to it is look at the amazing uptick in the podcast industry. You're listening folks to a podcast right now. How many of you
0: also like to consume content in that way? This is a podcast. Why have I, why have I been dressing up this whole time? I'm wearing a three piece suit. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well,
1: we'll have to take a picture of that and put it on the stream and, (laughs) Let's describe your suit.
0: It's it's purple when you have a black tie with... Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, to to your point, multimodal is the way to go for a few reasons. Um, one, because while a lot of the, the science and research around learning styles hasn't really held up, what has held up is the idea that you should match the approach that you use for learning to the subject that's being taught. Mm-hmm. So... Um, You know, a great example for those of us who work in software is learning how to use the interface of your product. Um, It's not really going to do you a whole lot of good to describe where something is located on the screen if you can show it. Or better yet, if you can give someone the opportunity to practice uh, using it and practice demonstrating that skill, which is part of why performance support and uh, walkthroughs and digital adoption platforms have become I think, so uh, So popular in software training. Um, right. But even the research itself has supported the idea of, and I think I'm going to get the term wrong here. Maybe, maybe future Adam can uh, <laughs> butt in here, but I think it's called dual coding. <laughs> it might be called dual threading. But basically it's the idea that when you learn something in more than one format, you're more likely to retain the information. So... Always having things be multimodal and giving someone two ways to process the information, um, that, that complements each other and don't distract from each other, uh, is going to be more effective according to that research.
1: That, yeah, that's amazing. And, 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 I like that. I mean, that I, don't you think the holy grail is ultimately, you provide someone with a deep, immersive, almost virtual reality environment where they have everything and they can, sim- you have a simulation and you, you might In a simulation, read a book that talks about something or go and actually have guides to help you interact with with a device or or the software or what have you. So, yeah, the more I like that, you know, dual threading, having more come at you in different ways helps. Well, it helps keep your attention, keep you engaged. Um, And then you're processing on different levels and different parts of your brain. So you're truly bringing it in.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, going back to the original question where, you know, we had the, the different options to choose from, you could have talking heads, you could have no talking heads, you could have slides, screencasts, drawing boards, text images, a mix. Uh, I, I think mm-hmm. one thing to think about here is uh, how you're dual coding that information, which is also important by the way, and I'm not going to go into this, but it's important for accessibility. So let's say that you have audio narration and on-screen um, visuals, Well, you also want to make sure that if, uh, you know, someone who's accessing your training is hearing impaired, you don't want to rely purely on the the audio narration um, because you want the learning to be accessible for them as well. So you have to think about that. Um, But then just from a pure learning perspective, more from a cognitive science perspective, uh, I think one important thing to think about as you're choosing your format is in addition to choosing the the format or the modality that would most likely teach the subject that you're trying to teach. Also think about cognitive load. Uh-huh. So one big mistake that I think we make is we try to overload the learner with irrelevant information. And a lot of the time that can be everything from having like loud, uh, marketing style music playing in the background of a video that we make. Hmm. Um, it could be including kind of irrelevant, graphics, um, just for the sake of having something to show on the screen because we can't think of anything actually relevant to show. So, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're not effectively dual coding. If you're just throwing a bunch of multimedia up there for, for no reason, it has to support the the learning goal and be directly relevant to it.
1: Oh, let's, uh, l- let me tap on this one. If you don't mind the talking heads, yeah, let's talk about not talking, the band. Oh, I want to talk about the band. What's your favorite
0: talking heads? <laughs> I love on? the band.
1: Um, I can't think of it right now. I love that song. Is um, where I mean, what were they? They originally like a concept art band, and you know, this it is not my beautiful wife. This is not my beautiful car.
0: You know, I love that song. As the days go by. Yeah, it's a once in a lifetime. I
1: think I that's anything. on once in a lifetime. That's, I think that's a, on Remain I in
0: Light. I don't know. Uh, please yell at me in the comments if it's not.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, back to Talking Heads in context of customer education. I I, here's to Emilio's question. He brought up talking heads. I think and I've used this before But I was working in marketing and I was doing more of a marketing style video. I wasn't doing Educational content as much. I was leading into it, but what I feel about talking heads I've seen some videos even recently where this is supposed to be education and you've got somebody who's dressed nicely looks awesome standing on the background looks all pro but you know what? We've lost 30 seconds of a two-minute video that you're trying to teach somebody something of me watching a person basically dancing on the screen. And I just think it's extraneous, and it's and, and this is me talking. Some of you may have a different opinion, but I think it's distracting. I think it misses the point. And even if you're not doing that you're at that, not at that pro level, on webinars, I've commonly done this one thing. Uh, I, I will tell you the story of my favorite virtual instructor-led class where it was actually an internal class, so we were onboarding some of our team members, and we had everybody on a Zoom session. We had a matrix, a grid of all of their faces, Brady Bunch style on the screen. And I can tell you one thing about that with that kind of a talking head arrangement, where you saw me and I saw you, it was really engaging because people were less prone to go idle around. But in general, if I'm building an e-learning content and I'm putting it up online, and it's not going to be interactive, you don't need to see me. That's more for webinars and stuff like that. So, um, And to this point, we recently saw some information, and future us are going to inject this data here. Um, data is showing that uh, having people displayed and talking head style in a video doesn't really matter that much, and in fact, it may hurt overall um, attention and uh, consumption of from from a, cognitive, so Adam, you, well,
0: from a cognitive load research perspective that makes a lot of sense the, yeah. the conflicting argument to that would be there is research out there which we can also inject um that when you see someone's face you are more likely to be engaged or you're more likely to retain the information and so i think that's where a lot of the talking head approach comes from either that or people just think, I mean, when you think about it from a marketing perspective and why you have people dancing and goofing around, uh, it's because Mm -hmm. it it makes your marketing approach more human, um, versus having this very abstract divorced marketing speak. Uh, it it is sometimes more engaging to actually see a human, um, and know that there's a person delivering, uh, the education or the marketing that you're receiving. So you have to balance that, right? Like really think critically, about when it makes sense to take that human approach or when having a face would make sense to increase retention, but not at the cost of, uh, you know, cognitive load and of really teaching what you're trying to teach. I don't know that it makes a ton of sense. This is my personal opinion. Now, I don't know if it, if it makes a ton of sense, like as you're doing a software demo to have your face in the lower left-hand corner because that's really probably screen real estate that you want to devote to towards showing your product UI anyway. And the face is probably going to mm-hmm. be distracting. But if you want to show your face, you know, at the beginning and the end of that video in a bumper to um, help engage the learner, then strategically that might make sense. So it's not, it's not necessarily an all or nothing proposition.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I, and it's really nice sometimes because I, I know I'll tell you a couple stories too. One story was that I was at a conference and some, some of my peers were saying, Dave, you need to stick around the booth here as we we're presenting. Um, somebody keeps coming up and trying to find you and doesn't believe you're real. Because I'd never had any video of me on the site, and she thought I was a robot or like a scripted voice. I thought that was hilarious. And when I met her, she's like, no, you are real. You exist. And okay, well, that made me think again about Talking Heads.
0: Well, you know, these uh, funny deep fake technology are, are really coming along uh-huh. so in the future you might actually be a robot I might
1: uh, and then the other story is and you, you recall uh, I, I have been pretty hyped on twitch and I still am um, in my current context it's not something that I'm looking at but twitch is very heavy in that and and I think but that that's like a different kind of mode of learning and there's a lot more real estate because generally they've articulated the screen so that you'll see what's happening on the screen, and you will see a video of of you, but it's usually small. And often there's a green screen, so the real estate isn't a problem. But I, I think we beat that up. Again, it really lends itself to who you're trying to connect with. But in general, I think you and I would agree that we lean away from the talking heads. Yeah.
0: And then I guess my last point on multimodal, and I know you have some thoughts here as well, is that... Really, if you're designing for engagement and designing for retention, you want to find the mix of formats that is actually going to lead not just to, you know, someone engaging with your video, per se, but uh, that will actually give them an option to show their skills, to interact with the content, to engage with the content itself. So including Mm -hmm. periodic knowledge checks or polls or surveys or interactivities that help them really digest the information um, can also be incredibly powerful. Now, a lot of the time you want to balance um, not being too heavyweight with the way that you're, you're doing that. So let's say you're teaching a virtual class. Well, hey, it might make sense to um, inject a poll question or a knowledge check every once in a while, but you don't necessarily want to be pulling up a formal poll you know, every, every two seconds because that's going to start to feel like a bit more of a tax um, on the learner. And especially if you're doing it through e-learning, um, there there is a tax to sending someone into a scorm file because those start to feel really bulky
1: yeah yeah i'm glad you, you brought up scorm and you know it kind of can be a love hate relationship and those of you who love it great those of you who hate it great again it's Does no you you use scorm it. When you need it. Um, well if you do you know leave some some comments in uh, <laughs> if you love if you love scorm on, um, don't somewhere add on our website <laughs> Uh, Hit us up on the Slack channel. We'll have a good conversation. I I know that for SCORM in particular, here's my take on it. I think SCORM has historically been a pretty good way to express a certain kind of interactivity and really kind of force people through a channel. So, you know, you're stuck in this video and then you have to answer a quiz and you have some kind of an interactive engagement. And then there's detection points to say, well, how long has I watched this? Have I actually watched the video? Me, I don't really care so much about that now now, because I'm seeing the LMS offerings that we have out there do a lot better job of allowing me to articulate maybe a small video, and then a quiz, and then an exercise, and then another video, um, and then assemble things in a a way that you, Adam, could come in and go, well, I'm going to watch the video, and then I have to go do something and come back. It's not like you're stuck in one different pipeline. Plus, I tend to think Scorm often comes with technical, you know, it's not cognitive load, but it's troubleshooting. It's um, technical debt sometimes because sometimes problems happen with it. Yeah. What are your thoughts on no, that?
0: No, I I agree. Um, there are definitely some rapid development e-learning tools out there that make this a little bit easier, um, especially the ones that are more uh, form-based authoring. They'll they'll consider more of these uh, factors for you, but you really have to think about every time you're starting to customize those, that's an additional level of QA, um, especially once you start moving out of form based and into, um, you know, more, more free form authoring, think again about, you know, what, what the ultimate impact on the learner is going to be and whether that's, uh, an effective trade-off for the level of interactivity that they're going to get from it. Cause you know what, not everyone is, uh, interested in the same cool types of interactivity that instructional designers are, are interested in, um, what's most important <laughs> in my mind, at least uh, is making sure that you are designing for retention and that, you know, regardless of the exact modality you use for it, you're giving the learner an opportunity to apply their skills and to reflect on what they've learned.
1: Yes. Yeah. Use all those the tools that you have at your disposal and give them many ways to consume.
0: Okay. So let's, uh, let's recap. Cause we, we actually talked about a lot of different techniques and so maybe we can just trade this off. I think, Uh, Takeaway number one was when you're thinking about the modality, the modality really has to do with your audience. So uh, do even a quick persona exercise to really learn who your learners are going to be um, and how they're going to best prefer to uh, have their content delivered. I would say that's number one.
1: Right. And, and, And I would say that number two is to really think multimodal and understand that while we tend to believe that. Learning styles are a myth. Um, they come into play, and if you go and, and take what the outcome of what Adam just talked about is, you know, who is my audience? What are they doing? What is their what is their demographic, psychographic uh, compo- composition? Then bring different type strategies to bear to serve. That, you know, so generally I find a nice video with a script that goes along with it and some hands-on exercises Bring different things to bear have quizzes have other aspects to help challenge the learner and break it up so that they can easily Navigate through your content.
0: Yeah, Uh, I think number three maybe going along with that point would be to make sure that when you're dual threading or dual coding uh, content to use the formats that ultimately would best reflect the type of learning that's going on. So, you know, if you're teaching software, a screencast of the software might help. Uh, if you're doing something that's more conceptual, maybe a, a drawing board or, or uh, something like that would be a good way to express that. Um, but again, make sure that you are uh, dual coding it. Absolutely.
1: And with that, I'd also mention that there's there's other things we could go on for days about, you know, ph- a philosophy around using Slides, uh, PowerPoints, things like that. Uh, how do you make and design great quizzes? Uh, how do you go about articulating a really solid demo? Uh, lots and lots of things in there that you, you should think about. We talked about talking heads, for example, and we, we say you know probably light use of them or not at all it would be my recommendation. If anything, beginning and the end of a video, if it's a webinar style, just to frame it up and say this is a real human being that you're engaging with.
0: Yeah. So, you know, to to wrap up on this question, I think a lot of people like to start by asking what is, you know, the best format as if there is just one best format. And I know that's not exactly the question Emilio was asking, but I do hear it a lot uh, phrased that way. And there is no one best format. But if you're using some of the techniques that we talked about today, you're going to have the right combination of formats that should be the most uh, engaging and the most likely to lead to retention. Absolutely. Can't, Can't agree with you more. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, we've already
1: given you kind of a summarized version of what we talked about today. Today's episode was a little bit more organic and freeform, but then again, we, we've been practitioners for a while, so we've seen a lot. Um, now, if you want to learn more, our podcast website is HTTPS colon slash slash customer dot education and again you can find various things all the other episodes and archive blog entries and show notes for some of the episodes and we're expanding that as we go and and if you've gotten value this is the number one thing we're, we're asking pleading with you share broadly share with others we want you to share with your friends your peers and your network and help us find all of those practitioners that are out there like us learning and growing by helping each other now on twitter i am at dave Darrington,
0: and i'm at everbescue but don't at me if you like scorm. and to our audience thanks for joining us go out there educate experiment and find your people thanks for listening